Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, October 10th, 2022, the 628th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. You will be supporting me and the work I do and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, just keep listening to it for free on a variety of platforms. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. So some housekeeping today before I get started. I learned that housekeeping thing from the highly intelligent Sam Harris, by the way. That's what he says. And now I say it too. A bunch of you pointed out that on Friday during the intro to the show, I said that Friday was October 22nd, 2022. I think I was just staring at the 2022 on my computer and the numbers transferred from my screen and out through my mouth without ever stopping in my brain. So to clear it up, I was not actually recording that in the future and playing it on October 7th. So just wanted to get that out of the way. 
And there are two other things I want to talk about. One is that I will be speaking at ThreadFest 2. My friend Patrick Gunnels does this conference of some of the people in our community that he's a fan of. He likes their work. He reads their work on Reading Epic Threads, his show, which you all should check out. And we're going to be getting together on the second weekend of November you can find ThreadFest tickets at threadfest.ticketspice.com slash threadfest-2. And finally, if you were watching the Devolution Power Hour last night, I joined Patrick Gunnels and John Harold, who many of you know better as Patel Patriot. And John announced a new media project that he's doing. I'll be joining him as will Patrick Gunnels, as well as a bunch of people on this show and other people whose names you'll know if you are in and around our communities on Telegram and Truth Social. And this is going to be a live stream video show. The plan right now is to do it uh, each Tuesday evening. And my show is going to be called What We Missed. And I want to talk for a second about what I want it to be because I am open to input from all of my listeners and their suggestions for topics and guests. What I want to do is look back through history, recent history, history from decades ago, and even ancient history if it is relevant. But I want to specifically target issues that the general public has an awareness of and everyone, for the most part, is totally wrong about as a result of our media completely lying to us about all of the facts of the stories and all of the meaning we should draw from those stories. And I mentioned a few of my ideas last night. I want to have someone come on and talk about the Unabomber or Waco or Tim McVeigh or the 2000 Bush v. Gore election or Iran-Contra, or Enron, or Fast and Furious. All of these stories that we've been given the media narrative about, that most people simply accept the media narrative and just have moved on, moved way, way on. I want to take the opportunity with someone who knows these stories in full and check to see what the media narrative is, what we were told about what happened, and then lay out what the real truth was. Because I, as most of my listeners know, would say that I really woke up within the last three years. And I don't think that I was ever nearly as bad as many people. And the wake up process started for real when Trump beat Hillary in 2016. But it was really the last few years when I really accepted that everything we're told pretty much is wrong intentionally and not just a little bit wrong, but basically the polar opposite of truth. We are told the opposite of what happens. And so with so many people being like me and having woken up in the last few years, having realized that way more than they ever imagined was just pure fiction pure lying and dishonesty from the media and from our culture. I want to try to do what I can to strip away some of those false stories and replace them with real stories because those old stories 
still matter. Many of them are foundational or at least explanatory for a lot of the things that we're going through now. And so I'm open to people's suggestions for guests and for topics. But I do want to say these are the sorts of stories I'm looking for. And I want to have really credible guests on people who might be experts in their fields, people who have studied a particular story intensely and know all the ins and the outs and where the mainstream media got the narrative completely wrong. And so please keep that in mind when you're thinking of suggestions for guests and topics. You know, it's not helpful to say, oh, do 9-11 because that's like, uh, well, OK, but a lot of people have already done a lot of the aspects of 9-11. And so my interest isn't actually to just hear what everybody has done. I want to be able to focus on a very specific topic and explain in a really credible, evidenced way why the mainstream story was wrong. Some people suggested ideas and topics last night without guests, and that's interesting. It's just not really helpful enough for me to make it actionable. And a lot of people suggested ideas that I'm totally interested in and might be appropriate for this podcast that would still not be appropriate for that particular show. I'm trying to present something so that the people who have woken up in the last couple of years can connect with it because they already have a familiarity with the central narrative version of the story. And I'd also be interested in doing episodes about stories the broader truth community has done a lot of work on, but that even people like myself may have missed. So if you have some great ideas, if you are an expert in some field and would love to tell the audience how the media got the story completely wrong, please get in touch. If you have ideas for guests, whatever, awesome. Get in touch on Truth Social at I'm Your Moderator or go to Telegram, t.me slash I'm Your Moderator. That's the info stream. If you just drop a comment in there and say, hey, I have this guest, we can cover this topic, hit me with a DM. I can do that on Telegram and then we can have that discussion. All right, housekeeping out of the way. So let's get started. The co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, Jan Wenner, sat down with Joe Rogan for an episode of the Joe Rogan experience that came out last week. And in that episode was this little gem. I love the Internet is great and I love social media, you know, uh, but like every other industry in the United States, it has to be regulated. If you don't regulate it. But who regulates it? The government. Do you trust the government to regulate the Internet? Absolutely. You trust the people that got us into the Iraq war under false pretenses to regulate the Internet? Uh, Do you think that makes any sense? Well, wait a minute. The, I would not. The people who got us into the Iraq war. It's the government. Was the, no, was the politicians. It's the, the government. In the end, yes, it's the government. But who else is going to regulate? But if they're going to so, be in power and they're regulating the Internet, they're going to regulate the Internet in a way that suits their best interests, no, the same way they do with the banking industry, the same way they do with the environment, the same way they do with energy, the same way they do with everything. No, what, but, is, what represents their interests? There's so mu You're talking about so much money hmm. involved in disseminating information in a very particular way. The richest companies in the world are, right now are the Internet companies that are 
rich beyond belief. Yeah, it's fat, but it's it's a disruptive thing that has never existed before. My, I, I think it exists, and I think w- where we're at is where we're at. I think we need to move forward collectively as a country with an ethic that respects truth and that appreciates opinions and reality and an and, and understanding of things that's not necessarily possible with corporate interest involved in the dissemination of information. But there's no way to do that except through the government. There's no, oh, excuse me, there's no way that you can do that except through the government. Why I mean, is that? Human nature is not going to change. But the government's not going to change either. But the government is capable of change. Okay, look, the government regulates, for example, the food supply or can regulate, let's take the, the food supply. Yeah, the Department of Agriculture. Why have they let glyphosate safety. infestate all of our foods? I, I, Let's stay with one thing. Yeah, but that's time. a problem. That's the I government agree. regulating. Well, then we better get better politicians in them to appoint better people. I mean, it's not, I guess, again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Okay. So let's take the uh, SEC or take the Food and Drug Administration's regulates big pharma. On the one hand, we've got a very safe supply of drugs in this country. You know, safe? Their drugs are tested. You know, you don't get too many bad drugs, you know, farm prescribed drugs. 25% of all drugs approved by the FDA get recalled. Now that is one brain-dead communist. Nothing Jan Wenner said made any sense at all. That was a series of absolutely atrocious arguments that he expected to sound smart. And that's the thing with the intellectuals, let's call them, on the left at this point and in whatever they imagine is the center. He is certain that social media needs to be regulated just like every other industry. Well, the first point is that every industry does not actually need to be regulated. You could make an argument that there are government regulations that are effective and make sense that most people would support, and that's fine. But that isn't some conclusive argument that regulations are good. Regulations are maybe good when they're good. But even if we were to agree that there are regulations that have positive benefits, there's still the conversation about whether anyone has the right to impose that regulation. And that's not a conversation we just get to skip because the government regulates and some regulations might be good. And we should stop using this euphemism that censorship of a certain variety is just a regulation. They're putting up rules about what can and can't be said, and they would argue that those rules apply across the board and that everyone using the product, let's say Twitter, for example, has the rules applied in the same way. Everybody has to follow that set of rules that they've agreed to. Well, in practice, that's not true. The rules are not applied evenly across the board. The rules are applied almost exclusively to people who are saying things that conflict with the central narrative. According to Twitter, anti-white racism is fine. Anti-male sexism is fine. 
anti-Christian religious bigotry is fine. But in any example, if it's not white people you're talking about and it's Asians or blacks or Hispanics or whoever, then all of a sudden racism is a problem. You can call masculinity toxic, but you're not allowed to say that women do bad things. You can say that Christians hate gay people, but if you say that ISIS throwing gays off of buildings has something to do with their religion, well, that's not allowed. So the rules are definitely not applied across the board. What he's arguing for is censorship, and we should call it what it is. It's not a regulation that keeps everyone safe. It is a clear violation of our most basic foundational principles upon which our society rests. That is what the Rolling Stone communist is arguing for. And then he says that the people to do that regulating should be the government. But why? Has that been debated in government? Have we seen a full public debate about what sorts of things should be disallowed from public conversation? Of course not, because the government actually has to deal with the First Amendment, or at least we expect they do. So they're not having debates about what people are allowed to say. The debate is always about whether or not the tech companies have the ability and the right legally to censor us. And then, of course, you run into the problem that the politicians are being bought off by these tech companies so that they can maintain their Section 230 immunity and have the ability to censor Americans. And they're doing the censorship in coordination with the government. Now, he says that it would be impossible for the people to regulate that. And only the government could do it. Well, if the people can't agree on what should be regulated, then the government shouldn't be able to do it because those politicians that make up the government are meant to be representing the people. What he's really saying is he believes that censorship is necessary and the only entity with enough power to be able to do that is the government. And of course, this is typical of the communist mindset. They have determined that something must be done. It can't be done by convincing the people because the people don't want it. So the communist turns to the government and figures out a way that the government will be able to accomplish what they want done, regardless of where the people stand. And all of this is especially funny to me because people like Jan Wenner and the very serious intellectuals on Twitter make up such a small percentage of our population. Of all the accounts on Twitter, it's something like 10% of those accounts create around 90% of the content that appears on there. And we have to remember that there is a large proportion of Twitter accounts that are bots. But even among the human users and among the active users and the hyperactive users who supply most of the content on Twitter, there is still disagreement there about censorship. That demographic, those hyperactive users on Twitter, those are the most pro-censorship people in our society, and they don't even have overwhelming agreement on how censorship should be handled. 
So the reality is that they don't even really have a majority, even among that small percentage of the population who are actually strictly pro-censorship in the way Jan Wenner is. And at some point, we need to really fully recognize that this is how it is for all of the issues. They take their little segment of elitists and academics and blue anon journalists, and they come to some conclusion that they think is very well-founded. All the experts agree with them. It's just science and you have to follow the science. And once they've decided on that position, that their position is objectively right, even though 98% of the world is excluded from their conversation, they determine that that position must be implemented no matter what. And so they go to the government because they think the government is the most powerful entity. And they'll even get the media on their side, the corporations, whoever else. But they never go to the people. And in our society, the way our constitution is set up, it is supposed to be the people with the most power, a government of, by, and for the people. The people are meant to be empowered through their representatives at the local level, at the state level, and then at the federal level so that the will of the people can be implemented. Now, why don't communists like Jan Wenner ever take their case to the people? And the most obvious answer is the people don't agree with them. If the people agreed with them, it wouldn't require all of the machinations. It wouldn't require the top-down control. The people would be implementing these things for themselves in their own lives, in their communities. And if it was important enough, then there would be a legitimate effort to get certain things codified in law. Another example that's highly relevant right now is the debate about abortion. It should be no problem for proponents of abortion to make their case in the states. If they actually had the majorities they pretend to have, they will always say that the majority of the country supports a woman's right to choose. Well, if that's the case, the solution is to go pass laws in each state. But they can't do that because that's not the case. I would be surprised if they could codify a quote-unquote right to abortion in any of the states if they all had legitimate elections. I have no doubt that they could codify in California a right to abortion, but California doesn't have legitimate elections. And this is why they don't go to the states. This is why the Dobbs decision makes them so angry. They were able to slide one in with Roe versus Wade. They created a quote unquote right out of nothing. The courts just decided. And now the courts have reversed that terrible decision and the communists are going nuts. They can't win the argument. They can't win a majority. And that's why they don't want the people exercising power. They want everything done from the government, top down. They think the government is the most powerful entity. The people in our society are the most powerful entity. If you can't convince the people, you can't get what you want. And if you think that your point of view is so important that it doesn't matter what the people believe, you must still have your point of view enforced, then you've got to give up the pretense 
that you care about, quote unquote, democracy, because it's absolutely clear that you don't. So let's talk about a major example of censorship on Twitter this weekend. This is from Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo, and this is from Friday. Today, we released an analysis on COVID-19 mRNA vaccines the public needs to be aware of. This analysis showed an increased risk of cardiac-related death among men 18 to 39. Florida will not be silent on the truth. And here's the press release. Today, State Surgeon General Dr. Joseph A. Ladapo has announced new guidance regarding mRNA vaccines. The Florida Department of Health conducted an analysis through a self-controlled case series, which is a technique originally developed to evaluate vaccine safety. This analysis found that there is an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related death among males 18 to 39 years old within 28 days following mRNA vaccination. With a high level of global immunity to COVID-19, the benefit of vaccination is likely outweighed by this abnormally high risk of cardiac-related death among men in this age group. Non-mRNA vaccines were not found to have these increased risks. As such, the state surgeon general recommends against males aged 18 to 39 from receiving mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Those with pre-existing cardiac conditions such as myocarditis and pericarditis should take particular caution when making this decision. Studying the safety and efficacy of any medications, including vaccines, is an important component of public health, said Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ladapo. Far less attention has been paid to safety and the concerns of many individuals have been dismissed. These are important findings that should be communicated to Floridians. And the analysis and guidance are both linked in that press release. For a long time, all of us who have paid attention to this issue in a real way, not simply by doing what the news says and following the science and trusting the science, but actually investigated, actually went to the sources, real experts studying the data, Pfizer's own documents like Naomi Wolf and her team are doing, and even just the anecdotal evidence from our own lives. There is probably no one listening to this show who doesn't know someone personally who was affected by either vaccine side effects, serious health consequences from the vaccines, or people who have actually died from the vaccines. And I would imagine that most of us probably know people who represent all three outcomes. So we've all known about this for a while, but this is now a state surgeon general not only communicating about risks and potential risks, but actively recommending against taking these vaccines. The truth is and has always been the vaccines are not safe. The vaccines are not effective. They don't stop infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. And beyond all of that, the vaccines are absolutely not necessary. Now, this is about as damaging to the vaccine narrative as anything could possibly be. So as you might imagine, 
Twitter immediately censored the Surgeon General of Florida on behalf of the vaccine makers and the rest of the global communists involved in this heinous project whose own lies and complicity are becoming fully exposed before everyone because those people will see accountability. And as the stories of deaths and injuries mount, consider how dangerous the censorship of any information disputing the vaccines are very safe and very effective and very necessary narrative has been. We're seeing it everywhere now. You might remember back in June, the daughter of Illinois Representative Sean Caston died. It was reported that she died peacefully in her sleep. And if you are a conspiracy theorist, you speculated that it may well have been from the experimental gene therapy. Sean Caston himself on May 17th of 2021 tweeted, in case you missed it, all Illinoisans 12 years and older are eligible for the vaccine. They are safe, effective, and key to our path back to normalcy. Everyone in my family, including my 14-year-old daughter, has started their vaccination process. Here's how you can get your vaccine. And he writes a thread. What a hero. Well, a year later, his own daughter dies, quote unquote, peacefully in her sleep. But is that really what happened? It is now being reported that Sean Caston has revealed his teenage daughter died from a cardiac arrhythmia. And I don't know about you, but I didn't hear of a whole lot of that when I was growing up. There weren't a whole lot of teenagers just dying spontaneously from heart problems. But there are now. The vaccines were never necessary. They were never safe and they were never effective. But that didn't stop the communists from marketing them around the clock and attempting to force and coerce people to join the medical experiment. And this is all truly a shame for the scientific community, which is likely to not be trusted in any real way for decades, at least. This is from the Gateway Pundit yesterday. Academia is dead. Leading medical journals peer-reviewed pro-vaccine study listed unvaccinated people with a previous infection as fully vaccinated. Just when you thought the COVID deranged establishment medical community couldn't lose any more credibility, the formerly reputable medical journal Nature Communications comes along and says, hold my beer. Despite a growing mountain of evidence showing that the experimental COVID vaccines are ineffective at preventing infection and transmission, a newly published peer-reviewed study in the journal Nature has concluded that, quote, fully vaccinated and booster vaccinated contacts are generally less susceptible to infection compared to unvaccinated contacts. And you might immediately say, well, that's not possible. All of the data we've been looking at for over a year now says the exact opposite. And of course, you would be right. The data does say the exact opposite. In other words, the vaccines prevent sickness and transmission. And here's the peer-reviewed study to prove it. Just in time for booster season. The study titled 
Household transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant in Denmark examined the COVID transmission and infection rates of 60,000 plus individuals to find out what was causing infection rates to remain so high throughout the arrival of the Omicron and Delta variants. After compiling the data, they determined that the unvaccinated are at a greater risk of infection than their vaccinated peers. And again, that's ridiculous. Just examine your own personal life and the people you hear about still getting COVID. Are they ever your unvaccinated friends and family members? No, they're basically always people who signed up for the medical experiment. But back to the article. How convenient. But unfortunately for the scientists, the study does not hold up to even an ounce of scrutiny as the propagandist experts or conversely, the expert propagandists manipulated the data in such an egregious way that it caused heads to explode across the scientific community. In one such response to the nature study, Dr. Simon Godek, a prominent scientist who specializes in biotechnologies and has been a leading critic of the experimental COVID jabs, blasted the bogus findings while lamenting about the demise of his entire profession on Telegram. He said, academia is dead. The peer review process is a joke. I'm ashamed to be a scientist. From now on, I'm calling myself an independent science journalist. Brutal. So how on earth did they come up with the data to support their ridiculous conclusion? Well, the study's authors, some 20 leading medical professionals, made their manufactured determination by counting unvaccinated individuals with a prior COVID infection as fully vaccinated. Yes, really. On the flip side, unvaccinated individuals included individuals with partial vaccination, you know, just in case they needed to play with the numbers some more. This is made clear in the study's notes from Table 2 titled Effective Vaccination, which states, one, this is the footnote, 1A, unvaccinated includes individuals with partial vaccination. 2B, fully vaccinated includes unvaccinated individuals with previous infection. Now, do they expect anybody to read that? When the media reports on this study, do they mention that? The science, the scientists who compiled this study on behalf of the pharmaceutical companies and everyone else complicit with this ever-growing crime against humanity, decided that to make their case, they need to make vaccinated and unvaccinated totally meaningless. Now, I am an unvaccinated individual. I would never join such a ridiculous, dangerous, and unnecessary medical experiment, and I am happy that I did not and proud of the fact that I withstood the cultural pressures to do so. But I did get COVID, or at least there is a COVID test that shows that I did. Because I was at a house party last December where 12 other people claim to have gotten COVID. Now, I'm in a blue city and there are a lot of communists here. And that was right in the booster stage following the big announcement of the very scary variant known as Omicron. It is my very strong suspicion that 
What I had was not COVID. What I had was spike protein shedding from all the vaccines who were at that party. Regardless, I was feeling a little under the weather for a few days. It didn't even stop me from doing this show. And I've been fine ever since. According to this study, I am fully vaccinated. And I guess maybe I should be happy because if they attempt a new effort of medical segregation, I'm able to tell them, hey, I'm fully vaccinated. You can't exclude me. Sorry, vaxies. Them's the breaks. Yes, you did it all for nothing. But also my redeemable communist friends who got the first dose of the vaccine and then stopped either because of the side effects or because they realized that they did not want to just keep getting vaccines for the rest of their lives that they don't need. They're unvaccinated. So you got your first two Pfizer shots so you could travel, so you could go to restaurants, so that you could just go back to normal. But then you smartened up. Well, you get nothing. You are unvaccinated. And I just want to be clear because I know this is confusing. The new standard, according to the esteemed scientific journal Nature, is that unvaccinated means you are either unvaccinated or vaccinated. And vaccinated means that you were either unvaccinated or vaccinated. And of course, we also know and should remember that if you get the quote unquote vaccine and then die shortly after, you're also unvaccinated because they like to keep that little window after they don't want you to count as vaccinated in the period where you're most likely to get sick and or die, because then people might put together that it's all from the quote unquote vaccine. These are the lengths they're willing to go to to keep the narrative going. Last week, Anthony Fauci appeared on Stephen Colbert's extraordinarily low rated and remarkably unfunny nighttime talk show. And Colbert asked him how he might advise Americans to convince their friends and family members to get vaccinated for the holidays so that they could all safely congregate. And he asked Fauci whether there was any legitimate safety concern, because, you know, a lot of the people who don't want to get vaccinated are really concerned about the vaccine safety. Fauci told him billions of doses have been injected in billions of people. Therefore, there's no way that the vaccine could possibly be unsafe. Now, obviously, that makes zero sense. But to communists who imagine that people are not individuals and only exist as part of an aggregate, take that argument very seriously. If a million people get vaccinated with an experimental gene therapy that's not a vaccine and doesn't work to protect them from a disease that can't kill them, and only a thousand of them have serious side effects or die, well, that's only 0.1%. And so that means that the vaccine is 99.9% safe. Of course, by that standard and with the same numbers, COVID is also 
99.9% safe. And of course, the vaccine is already more dangerous than that, and it's totally unnecessary. And we're only about a year and a half into the program. These numbers might look much different 10 years from now. But as Fauci said, there's been billions and billions of doses, which means that it's not just a thousand people who have been injured or killed. It's far, far more. But those people as individuals don't actually matter because the numbers say the vaccine's very safe and very effective. If you only pay attention to Anthony Fauci's numbers, which as this peer reviewed article in the scientific journal Nature shows those numbers are concocted from nothing. The definitions make no sense. They are abusing both science and language to make their point. Anthony Fauci said to Colbert, if you're the sort of person that looks at the data, the data says the number of deaths from COVID, that line goes like this. And he moves his hand up and to the side. Oh, it's a serious angle. Oh, the unvaccinated, they're under such threat. But the vaccinated, oh, it's basically flat. The vaccinated are so, so safe. And you might imagine that this absurd study is what he was citing in order to say that. But he didn't cite anything, of course, because Anthony Fauci doesn't discuss actual data. Anthony Fauci just claims that the data supports what he says. And because he is the science, he is also the data. Therefore, trust the science, trust the data, trust Anthony Fauci. And while you're at it, forget the problems with pregnancy and the miscarriages and the problems with men's sexual health. Forget the rubbery gray blood clots being found in people's veins during autopsies. Forget all of that. That's just disinformation. That is misleading information. And misleading information, it's important to remember, is information that might lead you away from doing what they want you to do. But fortunately, these narratives are collapsing and they're collapsing across the board, especially in Ukraine. This article appeared in Forbes last Wednesday, October 5th. The original headline was Nord Stream whodunit may never be known. What is known is that Europe energy is in deep crisis mode. Now, they changed the headline. And got rid of that first part, but that first part is still in the URL. The new headline is Europe Energy in Deep Crisis Mode. Explosions and a natural gas leak at the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, sister pipelines connecting Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea, remain a mystery. While we don't know who is behind the suspected sabotage, we do know that Europe is in big trouble as the cold weather months approach. How its nations handle this energy crisis will affect world markets. European governments have been filling strategic oil and gas reserves, but that is not how a country should organize its energy supply. Energy prices are too high. Europe is heading for deindustrialization. So it wasn't the Russians, and there's no evidence that the United States did it. It was probably just an accident. And it's not impossible that it was an accident. I mean, sure, it's absolutely, extraordinarily unlikely, but you can't rule an accident out completely. And because we can't give you another suitable answer right now, we hope that you will just keep in mind 
that it was probably an accident, even though it's extraordinarily unlikely. Now, it's funny that they just consider it a question of whether it's Russia or the United States. Now, there's almost no chance that it was Russia, which means any other answer is going to be unfortunate. So they say there's no evidence that it was the United States. Well, it doesn't need to be the United States directly. And this is the crucial understanding that remains ever elusive to those addicted to the central narrative. The United States is not one thing, and it's not an issue of whether it was the United States. The issue is whether it was the United States and its allies committing an act of terrorism against critical energy infrastructure as an act of war. The illegitimate regime has no problem whatsoever in speaking to the benefits of the pipeline explosions from their perspective, but there's no evidence it was them and it can never be known. So let's assume it was an accident. The only thing we know for a fact is that Russia is very, very bad and Ukraine is very, very good. So anything that hurts the Russians is good especially when it helps Ukraine and its allies. Ukraine is not capable of doing anything bad. But then there was this unfortunate article printed also last Wednesday, October 5th in the New York Times. U.S. believes Ukrainians were behind an assassination in Russia. United States intelligence agencies believe parts of the Ukrainian government authorized the car bomb attack near Moscow in August that killed Daria Dugina, the daughter of a prominent Russian nationalist, an element of a covert campaign that U.S. officials fear could widen the conflict. Now, she is the daughter of Alexander Dugin, who is a political philosopher in Russia. He is widely considered to be like the Steve Bannon of Russia. The United States took no part in the attack, either by providing intelligence or other assistance, officials said. American officials also said they were not aware of the operation ahead of time and would have opposed the killing had they been consulted. Afterward, American officials admonished Ukrainian officials over the assassination. They said, yes, they would never, ever want to take out Alexander Dugan, who is considered the philosophical guide of Vladimir Putin on some level. The immediate assumption in the aftermath of that event was that Dugan himself was the actual target of this car bombing and that his daughter was driving his car. So they blew up this man's daughter. But the United States was absolutely not involved. It was the Ukrainians. The U.S. had absolutely nothing to do with it. And it's too bad that this mostly innocent woman got killed. I mean, she's not completely innocent. Her dad says the no-no words. So she's a target. But if you really think about it, you'll realize that the Ukrainians did it. So, you know, it's not bad. What are they supposed to do? They're the victims of Putin's unprovoked war of aggression. But the U.S. would never do it because that might be considered an act of war inside Russia. The closely held assessment of Ukrainian complicity, which has not been previously reported, was shared within the U.S. government last week. Ukraine denied involvement in the killing immediately after the attack. 
and senior officials repeated those denials when asked about the American intelligence assessment. While Russia has not retaliated in a specific way for the assassination, the United States is concerned that such attacks, while high in symbolic value, have little direct impact on the battlefield and could provoke Moscow to carry out its own strikes against senior Ukrainian officials. American officials have been frustrated with Ukraine's lack of transparency about its military and covert plans, especially on Russian soil. And that is a total inversion from the false reality. American officials have been frustrated with Ukraine's lack of transparency about its military and covert plans. We have seen reports for months and months and months over and over about how American intelligence is serving as the primary guidance for Ukrainian operations, most particularly when it comes to assassinations of Russian leadership. Since the beginning of the war, Ukraine's security services have demonstrated their ability to reach into Russia to conduct sabotage operations. The killing of Ms. Dugina, however, would be one of the boldest operations to date showing Ukraine can get very close to prominent Russians. Am I crazy or does the New York Times actually sound kind of giddy about this assassination of an innocent civilian who was not even the intended target? But let's consider these two stories in relation to one another. A car bombing carried out against an innocent Russian woman. Well, American intelligence is certain that that was the Ukrainians. It wasn't the Americans. The Americans had nothing to do with it. But about that pipeline thing. Well, you know, we can't say that it was the Russians. It definitely, definitely wasn't the Americans. And I guess, you know, we're just never going to be able to find out. And who could possibly believe that? We are really to believe that American military intelligence or the very, very brave and very American CIA can't figure out who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. Guess not. Guess we have to assume that was just an accident. Well, there was another accident over the weekend. This is from the New York Times. Blast on Crimean Bridge deals blow to Russian war effort in Ukraine. The subheadline is any impediment to traffic on the bridge could affect Russia's ability to wage war in southern Ukraine, where Ukraine's forces have been fighting an increasingly effective counteroffensive. And once again, the New York Times sounds absolutely giddy about a terrorist attack on civilian infrastructure. A fireball consumed two sections of the only bridge linking the occupied Crimean Peninsula to Russia on Saturday, disrupting the most important supply line for Russian troops fighting in southern Ukraine and dealing an embarrassing blow to the Kremlin, which is facing continued losses on the battlefield and mounting criticism at home. The occupied Crimean Peninsula. The Crimean Peninsula is not occupied. And it's not part of Ukraine. The Crimean Peninsula is part of Russia, and it has been for years. During those years, the very brave Ukrainians 
who never do anything bad, cut off the water supply to Crimea. And all of that happened while they were still calling Crimea part of Ukraine. So the Ukrainians were cutting the water supply off to Ukraine. That's how we are supposed to take it if we're going to stay consistent about what's what. But since consistency doesn't matter at all within the false reality, Ukraine has still done nothing wrong and never would do anything wrong. Just to recap so far, the terrorist attacks against civilian infrastructure are good and Russia is losing. In fact, Russia is being embarrassed by this terrorism. The blast and fire sent part of the 12-mile Kerch Strait Bridge tumbling into the sea and killed at least three people, according to the Russian authorities. A senior Ukrainian official corroborated Russian reports that Ukraine was behind the attack. The official, speaking on the condition of anonymity because of a government ban on discussing the blast, added that Ukraine's intelligence services had orchestrated the explosion using a bomb loaded onto a truck being driven across the bridge. Now, the reaction from the elitists and communists on Twitter was pretty shocking. A Ukrainian official paired a picture of the bridge with a video of Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday, Mr. President, because the attack happened on Putin's birthday. But that's not evil. That's just what brave Ukrainians do. And by the way, there's at least some indication that the truck driver had no idea that the explosives were even in his truck. They basically made him an unsuspecting suicide bomber. Once again, the Ukrainians are very brave and would never do anything wrong. Militant global communist Julia Yaffe shared a meme of the Edvard Munch painting, The Scream, where Vladimir Putin's face replaced the face of the man in the painting and the bridge on fire was in the background. She was just cheering the whole thing on. She posted another picture of the attack and said, it's a bridge made of gold for Putin to retreat across. Impeachment hoaxer and global communist trader Alexander Vindman shared a picture of the bridge explosion and said, I've been dreaming of this moment. But it's important to remember, Ukraine never does anything wrong. And all the global communists supporting them are on the side of the good and the just and the righteous. Back to the article. For President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia, who presided over the bridge's opening in 2018, the explosion was a highly personal affront, underscoring his failure to get a handle on a relentless series of Ukrainian attacks. This is just blatant propaganda. The explosion is emblematic of a Russian military in disarray. Russian forces were unable to protect the bridge, despite its centrality to the war effort, its personal importance to Mr. Putin, and its potent symbolism as the literal connection between Russia and Crimea. Oh, the symbolism. That's what we need is perfect symbolism so that we can make the perfect propaganda. Hours after the explosion, the Kremlin appointed General Sergei Surovikin, yet another new commander, to oversee its forces in Ukraine. 
Previous leadership shakeups have done little to right the military's floundering performance. Oh, yes, Russia is being destroyed. That's why Vladimir Putin is trying desperately to join NATO and why his very, very honorable forces are assassinating civilians in Russia, blowing up civilian infrastructure and shelling nuclear power plants. The full extent of the damage was not immediately clear. The bridge has sections for train and automobile traffic. By Saturday evening, the railroad section of the bridge had undergone repairs and a train with 15 cars had successfully crossed the span, according to a Russian state news agency, TASS, T-A-S-S. Car traffic had also resumed on the undamaged side of the bridge. The head of Crimea, Sergei Aksyonov, said in a post on Telegram. Even so, Russian officials, military bloggers and politicians were already calling for revenge, with one saying that anything short of an extremely harsh response would show weakness. So the New York Times wants you to believe that this symbolic victory, this act of terrorism was justified and good and an extremely effective attack in this quote unquote war just as they're pretending that Crimea is still part of Ukraine. This is all very embarrassing for Vladimir Putin, especially on his birthday. And so they're also communicating the quote-unquote Russian side from officials and military bloggers that there is this massive need for retaliation. And as you would suspect, now there are reports all over the internet about how Russia is attacking Ukraine and specifically targeting playgrounds and kindergartens and hospitals and schools, just like they were doing in the Donbass at the beginning of the war, just like they were doing at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, except they weren't doing any of that. All of that was Ukraine. In fact, the Ukrainian neo-Nazi battalions were putting themselves up in civilian infrastructure and in the middle of towns and neighborhoods so that if they were to be attacked at all, they could make it look like Russians were targeting Ukrainian civilians. But remember, Ukraine does not do anything wrong. In fact, They are so good and so righteous under the leadership of the comedic actor that even their Nazi battalions are good Nazis. Nazis aren't the enemy anymore. The enemy is Kanye West, who the media might tell us in the near future is actually Russian. And what is all of this leading up to? Well, the hope, it seems, from the global communists that the evil twin faction as represented by the illegitimate president in the United States is involved in is a potential World War III. And it seems like they believe their best route toward a World War III and their best way to get a lot of the people of the world onto their side is by making it nuclear. And since that's scary, because everybody might die, 
They have to let you know that there is actually a good kind of nuclear war. And this is the sort of nuclear war everyone should actually want. You see, they're going to do a targeted tactical nuclear strike somewhere. Or at least Vladimir Putin will. It's not going to be the global communists. It's not going to be the West. Definitely not going to be Ukraine because Ukraine never does anything wrong. But Vladimir Putin, he's going to launch a nuclear first strike. And if he does, or if we say that he did, that means we get to go nuclear, which isn't bad because there's actually a good kind of nuclear war. And this is according to the Huffington Post who ran this headline. Could a small nuclear war reverse global warming? And the subheadline answers the question. Nuclear war could reverse global warming. Really intelligent stuff there. I hope their audience can read all the way through those two sentences and arrive at the proper outcome. And once they do, they're going to welcome a nuclear war. The same people who were too afraid to go outside their homes for a year and a half are now begging for nuclear war. And they're so happy about it that they're actually claiming it could kill two birds with one stone. It's like the global communists are trying to make a trade. Hey, we'll leave all you guys alone about the climate change stuff. If you'll just let us nuke all the parts of the world who won't let us do our climate change stuff. Oh, you will let us blow up those parts of the world? Thank goodness. We thought we were actually going to completely have to rearrange the lives of everyone in the entire world to fix climate change. But you guys now agree with us that the simplest answer is to just kill everybody. Congratulations, everyone. Now you've accepted the total inversion inside the false reality. And we're not going to have to censor you. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that 
by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!